This is an ABC podcast. There are very few people on this planet who can truthfully utter the words, I built a tall ship and I did it from scratch. Captain Sarah Parry has done this perfectly insane and beautiful thing. Sarah's been preoccupied by the idea of building a full-sized square rigger ever since she saw the tall ship, the new endeavour, in full sail, way back in 1965. Sarah joined the Navy and then became a cabinet maker. And then finally in Tasmania, she began to build a full-scale, seagoing, tall ship of her own, piecing together a 33-metre-long timber vessel from a 19th-century plan. The ship grew and grew inside an abandoned warehouse in Hobart, with the help of a volunteer labour force. The Windward Bound finally set sail in 1996. More than 200 people had helped in the building process. Since then, Sarah has sailed more than 100,000 nautical miles and circumnavigated Australia in this magnificent ship. Hello, Sarah. G'day. How are you, Richard? I'm fine, Sarah. It's an amazing thing you've done. You've just sailed back into Hobart on the Windward Bound. Tell me about where you've been. We've been around to a place called Port Davy, which is on the southwest coast of Tasmania, about 100 miles south of um, Macquarie Harbour, where Strawn is. It's an area about three times the size of Sydney Harbour. Uh, it's completely uninhabited. Just how stunning is it to sail into that inlet? Well, we, the phrase we use is, is sailing back a thousand years in time. You can't even see Port Davy from the sea because there's a, a line of little islands called Breaksea Islands, which are very aptly named, and, and they uh, form a barrier right across the mouth of the Bathurst Channel. Uh, so our passengers, whenever we have them, I delight in taking them up on deck, making sure they're on deck when we're heading in and looking at them and watching them as they look at me, wondering why we were heading straight for the cliff face. Uh, but the reality is that the as you get closer, you realise that there's actually an opening there and then you go through the opening, turn left, and you're in this channel behind the islands and uh, the whole vista starts to open up. So it's, it's incredible. Like a secret then. It's, mm, a, it's secret. a secret place. What kind of beasts and creatures and marine life do you find out there? Uh, out there, it's quite prolific. Uh, seals, um, dolphins, occasional whales. We actually saw a whale on this, this run round. And, of course, seabirds uh, galore. Uh, on the way back, in fact... I was on watching the chart room and I, I felt something hit my leg and I looked down as a little black shape on the deck. It turned out to be a little prion bird uh, that had uh, flown into the light and, and uh, suddenly wondered where it was. And so we gently picked it up and took it out and I feel this little heart thumping uh, in my hand and um, just held it on my hands over the side of the ship until it gathered its wits and off it flew again. So there's a lot of, lot of marine life out there. You say it's completely uninhabited. What does that mean? for the night sky when the stars come out? Oh, look, there's no ambient light. And when you're out on the ocean, and anywhere there's, when you're out on the ocean, there's no ambient light. And you, we were, we're running at night without... We have our navigation lights on, obviously, but we run without uh, internal uh, bright light. And so the sky just opens up and you get the whole Milky Way up there and all the stars and all the constellations, and it's pretty wonderful. Did you grow up close to the water, Sarah? I did. Um, I had the good fortune um, about when I was about... I think when we were about 12, I was about 12, um, mum and dad bought a, a block of land on the waterfront in um, Port Hacking in Sydney, south of Sydney. In the Shire? In the Shire, yeah. yeah. And um, Well, it's got the whole Royal National Park on the, on the southern side of it, so you've got all this built-up stuff in, around the bays there, and then you go across the, the sand spits and, and into, the, into the bush, and it's just a, it's a, another little bit of 
not wilderness like we know it down here, but still, it's another form of wilderness. And was there a family boat or a dinghy or something like that? Well, we had a number of family boats. Dad was a, a on and off naval officer. He, uh, he was certainly a naval officer during the war, and then he came out for a while, went back in and came out. So uh, we were a nautical family, and uh, Dad had a little 25-foot yaw-rigged yacht uh, that he'd done up uh, in our backyard at one point. And my grandfather, who lived with us at that time, had a um, 10-foot dinghy, which became my first square rigger. How did you turn a dinghy into a square rigger? Well, when you, you've got to be innovative, and, uh, <laughs> and I guess I'm a bit, a bit that way. And uh, so I, was, I, I thought, now I want to sail this. How can we sail this? So uh, then I, had, I discovered I had a mast and a yard in the dinghy, and you know, they're called oars. So I stood one <laughs> oar up and tied it up with some rigging and put the lash the other oar across as a yard. And, and mum, uh, mum got in the act and gave me a family picnic blanket, which was a little red and white check blanket, which I lashed to the yard, and away I went. Uh, with a paddle as a rudder. Did that work? Yeah, my word it did. And my word it did. Um, although sadly, I, I discovered uh, on my first little uh, outing with it that um, we had a beautiful little nor'easter blowing and on the bay and at Bloomy right down the bay, uh, down to the southern end of the bay and across the sand spit, which was delightful. And then I suddenly realised that the wind was still there and I had to go the other way to go home. So I had to dismantle my rig and row home. <laughs> <laughs> Did you learn to read the weather at that point? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we kind of grew up with the weather. I mean, Dad was always um, talking about what the weather was doing and, and we spent most of our recreational time as a family um, boating in one way, one way or another. So you tended to read the weather pretty well. And the weather in Sydney is a lot more consistent than it is down here or it used to be. And uh, so you, you knew if you had a nor'easter, you had a pretty good day. And if you had a westerly, you're likely to get a southerly in the afternoon and all those sorts of things. So you work, work around it. How do you do that? you just look at the sky or do you stick your finger up to the wind or do you do no, that? No, look at the sky and, and sort of smell the air. And, and What do you mean uh, smell the air? That's interesting. Yeah, when, there's, when you get those big hot summer westerlies that they get in Sydney and, and you know that there's a southerly, but you know when the southerly's coming. You can sort of sense it in the air and, um, and you can smell it and, and then all of a sudden when it hits, it's, go, it's bam. My brother-in-law, a week out from my wedding 30 years ago, told me it was going to rain on our wedding day because he said he'd, he'd sniffed the chimney, he said. And, <laughs> and is, that, is that what he's talking about? You can smell the yeah, change in weather? Yeah, you can kind of smell the air. I mean, we, we, we know even down here where a lot of weather, weather is quite inconsistent, but we know whether we think we can be pretty sure it's going to rain. But you just generally know it's going to happen. For a little while in your teen years, you were running with a a rough crowd for a bit. What was that like, that, that period? Um, well, I got into the surfing crowd. Um, just um, rebellious teenagers, really, who'd found a something that collective to do and um, it was a sense, sort of sense of belonging in it. And But it was a pretty rough crowd. I mean, they were relatively lawless. And uh, I, was, I suppose I was on that edge. My dad was mortified because I didn't want to get a permanent job I dropped out of permanent work and so what happened did your dad say you're joining the navy or you just were happy to join the navy no yourself? no dad was dad was pretty a bit more cunning than that dad and I used to watch a television show called Sea Hunt which was oh a, yeah remember I vaguely that? remember that yeah. yeah and and I'd been skin diving or snorkeling since I was a oh, since I was eight or nine uh, in fact I was snorkeling before I even learned to swim properly and so Dad uh, came home one night and announced that he'd arranged a tour of the Navy diving base for me. And uh, I thought, oh, that's pretty good. So we went down there and, 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 Dad, and a couple of diving officers took us around. And, and it was, to me, it was like an Aladdin's cave, you know, like it was all this. Uh, I had at home a mask and a pair of flippers and a snorkel. 
but here were all these magic things like wetsuits and, and all sorts of military diving gear. and Aqualungs and the like, yeah. Yes, all that, all of that. And they just suggested that, um, you know, if I was interested in getting involved in this, that you could join the Navy and volunteer and become part of the diving section. Yeah, but that sounds nice, swimming around un- underwater, but doesn't that mean going down and dismantling mines and that sort well, of stuff? Well, it does if you get to that point. I never got right. to that point. But three months later, I, I was in the Navy. <laughs> And um, one thing that the diving officer said to me was that if you really want to do this, you have, when you join up, you'll be asked to fill in a form on what you want to do, which branch you want to go into. And that won't happen until after you're in the Navy. So just write down clearance diver, clearance diver, clearance diver on the form. You get three options, you see. Well, they came back to me and said, you can't do that. And I said, well, I've done that and I'm not doing anything else. I, don't want, I came to do this. So I was lucky enough to get selected to do the diving course. But uh, as fate turned out, it, there was equipment and gear involved that really um, wasn't suitable to my physical being. And so uh, it, it, I didn't complete the whole thing. So where did they put you? Well, they, they sent me away to sea first on a survey ship. The ship was an old World War II frigate called the Baku. And uh, people do look at me sideways when they... Uh, Navy people look at me sideways when I say my first ship was the Baku because she was so ancient. And that's the ship I really... I really got involved in seamanship on. I learned all my real hands-on seamanship in that, in that ship. What does it mean to learn to practice that and well, be part of a, a crew? Seamanship is, is a, is a, is a, has a great pile of definitions, but I always look at it as the, as the, ability, uh, the ability to do the impossible with nothing to work with and, or very little to work with except people and blocks and tackles and lines and things like that. It was a very hands-on ship on the Baku and we carried two Land Rovers on board and we had to land those Land Rovers in remote areas to uh, help the survey parties and things like that. And We had to land one of them one day and, and we did it by lashing two whalers together to form a catamaran and putting the Land Rover on top and towing it into the beach and driving it off and all those sorts of things. All the derricks and everything operations on their raw manual. This doesn't sound like a hard life. I mean, it sounds like a hard work, but it sounds like a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a huge amount of fun. This is the mid-60s yes. at this point. Oh, early 60s. Early 60s. So 64. Okay. Yeah. So Australia has now just started to participate in the Vietnam War. I'm not really very cognizant of the Navy's role in our participation in the war. Were you involved in that in some yes. kind of a deployment? Yes. Where, did, where did they send you? Um, well, after the, uh, after the survey stint, I uh, became a, what was known as a quartermaster gunner. So a quartermaster gunner was the person who was at the controls of the guns and... What kind and, of guns were we talking about? Well, I was, we were trained to uh, operate four and a half inch, the big four and a half inch guns, um, uh, 40 millimetre bofers, all sorts of small arms. Uh, in those days, we didn't have the weaponry that they have now, so it was all things like um, Bren guns and all, all manner of things, down to submachine guns and pistols and everything. So these four and a half inch guns you're, you're operating in combat, they, they'd be trained to take out other naval vessels or...? or oh, well, or aircraft. Aircraft, or right. land Land right. operations. By this time, I was, I'd been sent to um, HMAS Vendetta. And um, my role on, on Vendetta was as a, what they called the captain of the gun on a 40 millimetre BOFA, an anti-aircraft BOFA. So I'm going to ask you, like this, the inner 10-year-old in me really wants to know this. What's it like to fire one of those things? The, the, pretty noisy. Pretty noisy, but the, and, and, and you know all about it. I'm, I'm yes. figuring it wouldn't oh, just be you the do. noise, you'd feel the whole thing. You on do, the... and so you're so focused on what you're doing that you don't think too much about it. It's just the noise. How, how badly did it affect your hearing? Well, we, ha- we had an incident up in during... Uh, we, we, we went to Vietnam, to Vung Tau, 
we went across as escort to HMO Sydney and then we spent most of our time in and around Indonesia and Borneo, Borneo and Malaya because at that time the Indonesian communist uh, insurgents were trying oh. to get across into Malaya and Borneo to cause strife and upset the, the government there. And so we, when we were in Borneo, we, um, we had a bit of a dust-up with an Indonesian boat. And so I was up on the bridge uh, doing my gun direction uh, role. And there was a problem with the sight on my gun. And the p person who was actually operating the gun was, was having great difficulty getting near the target. And the, the captain instructed me to go down and take over, which I did. And I put about 96 rounds of this stuff into, the, into that boat. And it was also so, so intense, I hardly even really noticed it. And, but then when they want you to stop firing, they ring a bell. And it's called a check fire bell. And anyway, I, I had to be banged on the shoulder to stop firing because I, I didn't, couldn't hear the bell. I was absolutely, totally deaf. What had happened to your hearing? It's just gone. Uh, it, it was... Um, what, physically damaged? I, 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 yeah, well, it turned out it was physically damaged. But at, at that point, I was completely stone deaf. I, I could see people mouthing words at me, but I couldn't hear them. Anyway, I went down to, after the, the shoot wrapped up, um, I went down to see the doctor and he had a look and, and then he, he said, well, see how it goes over, overnight. And by the next day, it had eased off a bit. And by the day after that, I had most of the hearing back in my left ear. But my right ear, which had been right beside the breach where the, there was concussion damage, was still pretty low, pretty bad. And in, in, the t in, the, in the way things were at the time, I mean, it's just the way things were at the time, the doc said, oh, well, we're, right, when we get back to Sydney, we'll get it looked at. And that was about five months away. And more firings and more gunfire and so on in the meantime. After you returned from Borneo, tell me how you became involved in a, in a, in a very perilous rescue at sea. Well, that was, I was still on Vendetta. And at, at the time, we'd come back from uh, that, that trip up north and we were at sea. It was one of those mad, incredible southerly storms that the New South Wales coast can get from time to time. And we received a mayday, a dredge called the WD Atlas, was in trouble down off Jarvis Bay. And we were out off Sydney Heads, somewhere about 20, 30 miles out of Sydney. And the captain announced that, that we're, going, we have, we're going south to see what we could do to help. So this ship, the Atlas, got caught in this storm. In this storm, yeah. And in distress, sends out this signal. And you've been sent in there to, your, your ship's been sent in there to see what you can do. What was it like to go into that storm, into those waters? It was pretty horrific because she was taking water. We knew she was taking water. They were in, they were in danger. The storm was so bad that we were, now this is a ship that's got about 50,000 horsepower in its propellers. And it could do 38 knots in reasonable conditions. And we were doing about five knots, giving everything we could give it to get down. We suffered some fairly severe damage on the way down. There was a, a 44 gallon drum of oil up on one of the upper decks, way up above the storm, um, that a wave took and took it off the ship and then brought it back into the ship, slammed it in through the, um, the after superstructure of the ship, punched a hole you could walk through. The um, gearing on the davits broke. So the davits were free swinging and, the, and the, anyway, they ended up smashing the boat to bits. And You're being smashed up as you're going into on the, the way rescue. down. And I, I know you sea salts think nothing of this, but oh no, no, I won't I, say, I, no, I, no, no, no. I, the whole business though of, of of sailing into of of going through a storm where you you're doing that roller coaster thing, climbing a huge wave and then burying the burying the whole bow. Yeah, the go, right. 
So you were doing all that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was actually up on the bridge about a bit after midnight and we got the, the fateful message which said, Mayday, 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 we are sinking, we are sinking and uh, we are abandoning ship, which was the frightening thing. Uh, yeah, it was that really sent shivers, sent shivers up the spine thinking about it now, actually. You mean trying to pick people out of the water in a storm at night? Well, we, <laughs> we, by the time we got there, it was morning. It was like daylight and um, all, the, all there was was debris floating around. Um, there were a couple of bodies we could see, there, there, but there were some live people as well. And then the helicopters came out, Navy helicopters came out from uh, HMAS Albatross, the shore base at Nowra, and, um, and, we, and the, the, apparently it was organised that they were going to pick up the live ones and uh, we were to recover the bodies because um, picking up the live ones was dangerous enough. And it was too dangerous for us to try and pick up any of the live people because the ship was rolling really badly. And so we, we were, I think we picked up five bodies and I think they rescued five and the other three just disappeared. It was pretty bad. So when you got back to Sydney and they checked out your ears and your hearing, what did they find out? When I got back to Sydney and they did eventually look at it, they stopped me going to sea again. Are you still deaf in one ear? Yeah, uh, pretty much. Yeah, in this one. I um, receive a fairly healthy uh, war pension for it, and um, uh, which is okay. You know, as they say, one door closes, another one opens. It's right. around about this time you saw the new Endeavour for the first time. I have vague memories of that as a, a, a recreation of the Endeavour. From my childhood, it's very foggy, but how, what were the circumstances in which you saw that, that tall ship? I was standing on, I was still in the Navy at the time actually, and I was standing on the shore of Garden Island and um, in Sydney, and I saw this vision, that's the only way I can describe it really, coming up the harbour. And we hadn't had, at that stage, I'm just trying to think, we hadn't had a tall ship in Sydney in my memory, and um, suddenly there's this, all these clouds of white sailing up the harbour. And while she, she wasn't actually a recreation of Endeavour, she was, she'd been named New Endeavour. I think for whatever reason, she was a 19, she was built about 1917. She was originally a Baltic trading schooner. Right. And she'd been purchased by this amazing guy called Tiger Tims. Um, oh, he was part of the crew. I think there was a syndicate bought her in, in uh, Europe and uh, it took her to England and rebuilt her and uh, sailed her out to Australia. And what did you think? Or what, more importantly, I suppose, how did, how did it make you feel seeing that on the water? I just looked at that and I thought, my God, you know, I've got to get involved in this sort of thing somehow. That was the first thing that went through my mind. Yeah, but when you think that, it's a lovely thought. And it, um, but, of course, it's a whole thing and a whole culture that's almost entirely disappeared at that point, about making a big ocean-going timber square rigger like that. So yeah, well, yeah. at the time, I hadn't even really considered building it, but building one, no, that was, um, it was just a, that rush to somehow be involved. Well, I couldn't get involved in that because it was um, uh, it was busy off to, busy doing things, and I was tied up with the navy. But in uh, I was out of the navy about 1967, and in 1970, the was the the bicentennial of um, James Cook's visit. Point, yeah, to the east coast of Australia. The, the east yeah. coast of Australia, and uh, and the landing at um, in Botany Bay, and so there were a whole pile of tall ships came out for that. And um, amongst them, there was a replica of, well, it, was, it was a, wasn't a good replica, but it was a replica of the Endeavour. It was called Endeavour 2. I, oh, that's the one I'm thinking of. I think, yeah, then. I think yeah. possibly it is. Yeah. And I had a look at that. I, had a, I went on board that and talked to the people there. And, and uh, there was another vessel called Regina Morris, which was a 
Norwegian vessel. And I think Esmeralda, if I remember rightly, was the Chilean Navy big tall ship, big Navy tall ship that came out. There was a, a few tall ships came. And that enthralled me even more because I thought, wow, there's actually a world out there. So I started doing bits of research as one did in those days by looking up encyclopedias and things instead of going on Google like you do now. And I started to find out more and more. And by that time too, about then, I was involved with what became the Sydney Heritage Fleet. I got that involvement started not long after I got out of the Navy. The, um, there was a, a Baltic trader catch called the Avanti. Uh, which um, had been owned by a, a couple of uh, Swedish brothers, I think, uh, in Sydney, and uh, they run afoul of the customs department, and the customs department had seized the boat and auctioned it off, and it mysteriously sank that night. And my involvement started because I watched. A, I was watching uh, Stuart Littlemore. I think I can still remember the reporter. Uh, it was that important to me, and and uh, interviewing a fellow called Warwick Turner on uh, ABC News. And there was the mast of the Avanti sticking out of Sydney Harbour and no sign of the boat. And Warwick, he was the founding person, the person who founded the whole Sydney Heritage Fleet. He was saying, we could, we, if we could get this up, we, could, we can preserve this and, and um, it's got historic importance and all that sort of stuff. And I thought, I know how I can get it up. So I rang him up and told him that I'd not long uh, left the Navy. I, I finished my entire short time or most of my short time in the Navy at the Navy diving base, even though I wasn't actually part of the diving team. I suddenly thought there's a salvage exercise uh, for the Navy. So I went straight around to see the boss around at, at HMAS Rushcutter and basically said, have I got the job for you? <laughs> and uh, anyway, I explained it all and he said, yeah, we could do that. That'd be excellent. Uh, Navy diving team plus myself went round to Avanti and they got her up patched her up, um, discovered 23 man-made holes in the hull, <laughs> which is what she's saying. <laughs> so it was a bit of peak, a peakness on behalf of the previous owners, I suppose. So you left the Navy, as you said, yes. and you had a family and you retrained as a cabinet maker. Why did you decide it was time to leave Sydney? What made you want to do that? Well, Sydney in those days was a very challenging city to live in. It was, uh, traffic was as bad, if not worse, then than it is now. The weather was hot, it was sticky, it wasn't a great place. And one, the long weekend, Australia Day weekend in 1972, I looked at my other half at the time and said, look, let's get out of Sydney for the weekend, this is no good. And she said, what about Tasmania? So I thought, yeah, well, I haven't been to Tasmania. Sounds like a great idea. So we jumped on a plane and came down. It felt like pulling on an old boot for you, didn't it, going to Tassie? It, it did, because when I got down here, it felt incredibly comfortable. It felt... Um, I sort of felt at home uh, without realising why, but I, I just felt that I was in the right place. And, um, and I knew I was in the right place when I asked one of the locals why, where, where everybody was. I said, has everybody gone to a, something on the other side of Tasmania because there's nobody here? And he looked around <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he said, no, no, that's pretty normal. And I thought, well, if this is normal, Sydney's abnormal. And so <laughs> so that, that led to... Uh, an eventual move down. So the whole time, as you said, you've been thinking about tall ships and somehow being involved in them in some way. Wanting to be a crew member of such a ship is one thing, but this insane dream of wanting to build one, what inspired you to do that, Sarah? Oh, full moon, maybe. I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was a full moon night when I made, when I made, that, made that decision. 
I'd come to the conclusion, I, I'd been doing quite a lot of investigating and um, talking to people and and one of the things I discovered was that I knew that there were any number of these ships available over in Europe uh, that were past their, well, they were actually past their use-by date. That's why they were available. And before I'd moved down to Tasmania, the Sydney Maritime Museum, as it was then, were looking at buying the, the new Endeavour, the one that I'd seen mm. sailing to Sydney. And we did a big survey on it. We went right through the boat and we found an enormous amount of rot in the boat, a massive amount of rot. And I thought, well... So these are European-built European ships. European-built ships. They're, and they're worm-ridden, effectively. Well, they're effectively, because they're built for a 25-year lifespan. Right. Built out of local uh, Balti pine and local pines. They're just not suitable to bring to a climate like ours um, and a water climate like ours because our waters are full of Torito. Uh, and, um, what is that? Uh, Torito is a shipworm. It's called shipworm. It's, a, it's a, a little grub that starts off as a tiny little speck and gets into the edge of your plank and then eats its way through your hull. It's not a nice thing. And, uh, in fact, the piece of shipworm-ridden timber is a frightful-looking thing to look at. It's like one of those ants' nest things, you know, without the ants. So and does that mean if you were going to have any kind of a tall ship in these waters, you'd have to have different timbers or you'd have to treat it differently? Is that what that meant? All of the above. Right. Uh, and it also meant that if I really wanted it, I was going to have to build it myself. <laughs> uh, because there wasn't anything available. Could you tell anyone or did you say, oh, I'd better uh, keep that to myself? That I talked thought. about building a boat. That yeah. was about as far right. as I went. Um, right. Was this is, this is a bit to... different from getting a couple of oars and putting them at right angles and putting a picnic yeah, blanket on them. it is. Yeah. But, uh, boats are boat. And so, but you're a cabinet maker in those days. But a cabinet, a cabinet is just a, um, a boat is just a waterproof cabinet. <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> waterproof from all sides. Um, it's, I mean, the woodwork is that fine. It's, a, it's the same sort of principle. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So that's a big leap, Sarah. You've been making cabinets. How do you make that leap from making timber cabinets to your own tall ship? It's a huge leap, isn't it? Sorry yes, about. it is. And, and the simple answer is that you don't do it straight up. You don't jump off a cliff and do it straight away. I mean, I, I was at a point where in my life where I had, um, I had a, fa a young family and um, I had responsibilities and there was no way that I was going to be able to do something as insane as that at that point. And I spent a lot of my time in Hobart just researching um, See, I'm not hearing a lot of drama in your voice here. Like, I think I'd be taught, anyone would be tortured by this decision. You just thought, oh, I'll do it. Did you? Was it really no, that simple? No, no, no. I'm a great believer that when the time's right, it happens. And the time wasn't right. But the time was right for research. The time was right to look. I had no idea what I, exactly what I was going to build. I had no... Building a tall ship is one thing, but there's hulls and hulls and hulls and designs and designs. So, so where on earth do you go to research building a 19th century tall ship? The library. <laughs> it's a great, great place to start. And um, in these days, you'd Google it. But the library, I spent hours of time in the library. And I was living down in the country, and uh, there was a, a bookmobile. And uh, once they twigged on the sorts of things that I was wanted to read, they'd find them. They'd just bring them to me. And so there was all these books turning up on shipbuilding and boat building and uh, designs and yacht designs and ship designs and all sorts of things. And one day, I opened the book. 
that they brought down and there it was. There was a line drawing. A line drawing is, is the topographic drawing of a hull. So it's a, a whole pile of curves and shapes and things like that that gives you, it defines the shape of the hull. And um, there was a line drawing about this vessel that was built in 1848 in Boston. And I said, that's it, that's it, that's it. I found it. See, my suspicion is one of the reasons why people love these ships and become madly passionate is that line. The line on, on, on those timber ships is so beautiful. Mm. It's got just that elegant curve mm. and sweep the way it pitches up to the prow. It's a really lovely thing to look at. It's like looking at a 1950s car or something like that. It's yeah. just got yeah. streamlined. Yeah. And it's, it's a thing of great beauty, isn't a it? Great beauty. And, and so is a classic yacht, any classic yacht. Um, so what was right about this design you, f- you found? I just saw it as being a very sea-kindly hull. Um, sea-kindly, that's sea a nice kindly, phrase. Sea-kindly, yeah. yeah. It's, the thing I really liked about it was the keel uh, runs downhill, so she, she, the keel is a metre deeper aft than it is forward. And I looked at that and I thought, she's going to track really well under sail. Anyway, I knew that they don't build boats off line drawings the side, you know, a, foot, a foot long. There was going to be a big manuscript for that. Right, a huge, big uh, Well, a big plan. drawing, a big right. sort of, you know. So where were the plans? Well, that's what I had to find out because the, unfortunately I discovered the author had long died. His widow, who I wrote to in America, uh, the book was 20 years out of print. And uh, I wrote to his widow and she had no idea where, the, where all his books and things were. They went somewhere, but she wasn't sure where. So I kept hunting. I, I kept ringing. By this stage, um, I was living on my own. My marriage had, had failed and I had time on my hands. And I, I suddenly realised that now is the time. I'm actually in a position to be able to start doing something about it. And so I used to ring around at night. I'd ring, ring all over America. Anybody I thought that I was an avid reader of Wooden Boat magazine and I rang them. And they said to me, in fact, when I finally talked to them, that um, they thought all of his manuscripts were in the Smithsonian Institute. So I rang the Smithsonian Institute and they, they put me through to this the curator of all this stuff. And he said, oh, yeah, I think we've got that around here somewhere. And he said, where are you anyway? He said, you're not an American. I said, no, I'm in Tasmania at the bottom of Australia, Hobart. He said, oh, Hobart. He said, I was there in 1944. He said, I had a great time in Hobart. <laughs> And somebody said to me once, I should, I should have said, Dad, <laughs> to him, but that might, have, <laughs> that might have caused a problem. So I didn't. But um, anyway, he said, look, call me tomorrow and I'll see what I can find. So I rang him back the next day and he said, yeah, we've got it. And he said, um, what do you want, why do you want it? And I said, because I want to build it. And he said, um, you can have a copy. He said, I can only do one. He said, the original is very, very damaged. And he said, I can only do one copy without, without risking the, 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 the original document. So he said, you have to be satisfied with that. I said, that'll do. And so a week later, the tube turned up and there was the drawing. And that's where it all started. So you've got the plan. I've got you... the line drawing, not the, li- the plan. Oh, okay, the line drawing. The line drawing is simply the shape of the boat. And it usually comes accompanied with a thing called the table of offsets, which are all of the dimensions that relate to all of the crisscrosses on that line drawing. Yeah. And I didn't have those. But I knew, them, I knew the main dimensions of the boat. They were on it, but that was all. So then I, the, the next stage of that process was to sit down with a pair of dividers and a scale rule and create my own table of offsets. So a process of deduction. So there you have your plan, but you need a place to build the ship in and it's a big ship and you also need materials and you also need people to help you make it. How did you get all those things? Well, it didn't all happen at once. By that stage, 
my cabinet making had progressed a bit and I was actually working in the advertising industry uh, as a freelance uh, set designer and set builder. Uh, but I was actually doing quite well with that. And um, the advertising agency, this was just, this is 1987 now we've jumped up to and the um, tall ships, big tall ships was, were coming for 1988. And the local advertising agency I was working for wanted to do a big poster promoting the tall ships because they were starting the whole event here in Hobart. They were all gathering in Hobart, which for me was like a heaven that I couldn't believe was coming. So uh, they said, you know tall ships, we want you to go out on the eye of the wind, uh, go away on the eye of the wind and take some photographs. I said, well, what do you want? And they said, well, we don't know because whatever, you, you just take tall ships. <laughs> you know how it works. And um, so they gave me a big box of transparency film and I gathered my trusty OM1 and um, jumped aboard and photographed and photographed and photographed and photographed and and um, well, this is all research was it for the for your own ship well this well that's what it became yeah, yeah. I, mean, I saw it as research my own ship but i was going to give them what they wanted as well and so i i took the photographs but i met this guy tiger tims who owned the eye of the wind anyway in the course of the day i saw all this patch timber on the eye of the wind little patches spliced in here and there and I said to Tiger, I said, did you build this out of recycled timber? And he said, yes. How else would I do it? And I thought, Bonza, fantastic. And then he said to me in the course of that, that trip, he said, what are you going to do with the ship? Because I told him I was going to build a ship, of course. What are you going to do with it? And uh, I said, well, I'm not entirely sure yet. And uh, he said, um, well, you're not a millionaire, are you? And I said, no, absolutely not. And he said, well, it's got to work, hasn't it? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you need it in survey. What survey are you going into? First, I'd heard of survey. Uh, in what the, is survey? Well, survey is when you the ship is registered to carry passengers and she's checked out by the Maritime Safety Authority and she's built to the Maritime Safety Authority requirements and so on. We get inspected every year. So you can use it as a nation? So you can uh, use it as a commercial vessel. vessel a commercial a vessel, vessel, right. Yeah. Okay. And so he said, take your plans down to the survey authority roll them out on the desk and ask them what they want you to do. Listen very hard and do exactly what they want you to do. And he said, you won't have a problem with them. Well, that's exactly what I did. Next week, I was down, down, down at the survey authority, rolled it out. Anyway, he, he told me exactly what, it, what he wanted me to do, go and see a naval architect, get them on board. Uh, he gave me a list of naval architects and I found a very friendly naval architect who also fell in love with what I was doing and uh, offered to do it, uh, do it at no cost. You mentioned recycled timbers there. Did yes. you use them for your own ship? Yes, I did. And where did you get the timbers from? Well, in those days, there was no recycling of timber in Tasmania. So I just started looking around, finding what was going on. I had plenty to do in the meantime, and we still had to loft the ship up to full size. Like, we had the drawing, and we had the measurements approved. Uh, we had a rough building plan from the uh, architect. But we still had to create the full-size drawing, and it took 58 sheets of plywood, painted white, laid out on the floor of a giant shed. And then you draw it all in. You take that drawing from that by that and turn it up to 100 feet long by whatever. Uh, I was driving past the old Prince of Wales Theatre in Hobart and uh, saw it was being demolished. There's a little sign, demolition sale. I thought, oh, I wonder what's here. Oh, I demolished an old theatre. Yeah. How sad. I know. But you put the timbers of that to good use. Yeah. I went in there and an hour later I came out with not only, not only as the owner of the entire roof of the theatre, but also a truckload, a, a seriously big truckload of blue gum, nine, nine by four blue gum, which had been used for the floor joists of the stage. 
And they were just pulling it all apart. And I said to him, where, where, where are you taking that? And he said, to the tip. So could you have that for free? No, $15. Much. 15 bucks for the lot? Yeah. Well, 15 <laughs> bucks for the truckload. Right. And I, and I think it was $2,000 for the entire roof. But the entire roof was all Douglas fir. Oh. All Oregon. Like 60-foot oh, lengths. 60-foot lengths. So you couldn't believe your eyes, I suppose. No, I, I, I was, the ship was forming in front of my eyes, right. really. How lovely. And so that's, how, that's where it all started. All that roof of that theatre really provided me with the bulk of what I needed. Now, tell me about the kids who joined your work crew building the boat. We were about halfway through the construction. So we had the ship about half built and or half framed up anyway. And um, a social worker came down to see me from the Hobart City Council. And I'd made no secret of the fact that we were doing this to work with youth. But we hadn't intended to work with youth at that point in time because it was a fairly serious construction site. So he said, I've got some young people that really need something to get their head into. They're a pretty rough lot, been in a bit of, been a lot of trouble with the police. Would you be interested in taking them on? And what happened when they came on, on the work site? What did they make of what you were doing? Well, when they came on the work site, they had a look around and they had a bit of a conflict a bit amongst themselves and they said, um, oh yeah, we could, we could give you a day a week. And I thought, well, that's a start and um, a day a week. If that helps them, and then it's a good thing. We'll find something for them to do because there's always lots of stuff to do. And they never stopped coming. They came the first day and we put them straight to work and got them going on things and provided lunch and all that sort of thing. They uh, came back the second day? Came back the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, and for about a year and a half afterwards. And they just kept coming. It was a very interesting thing because they were a rough bunch of kids there's no doubt about that yeah but the saying goes you know if you can't create you will destroy if you're a young man and particularly young men in particular will destroy if they can't create and so here they are creating they're creating, creating. they're creating yeah, putting one one bit of wood on top of another bit of wood machining learning to use power tools doing all sorts of stuff and we had at that stage we had the mast for the ship in the shed as well and the mast and the anchor windlass and anchor cables came off the new endeavor and it, well, a strange irony for that ship that came up the harbour all those years ago and suddenly um, we found ourselves the owner of all of a rig. How did working on the ship change things for these for the kids? guys? Yeah. Well, they, they put in their own words and they said it was the first time that anyone had ever trusted them with anything. And I think that's what it boiled down to. Trust and recognition and the fact that they were going home at, when they did go home at night, they were too tired to do anything else. Uh, but they also had a sense of accomplishment. And how did it change the relationship with uh, the police and the, uh, the officers of the court? Well, that's an interesting story. Uh, the North Hobart Rotary Club became involved in the ship accidentally because one of their members wandered into the shed one day and saw what we were doing. And they were so impressed with the whole process, they um, arranged for some plaques to be made to be presented to these young people. They very uh, cunningly arranged for the police commissioner to come and present them without telling the kids. They told the kids that they were going to put them on a barbecue for them. And what happened? What did the kids do when they saw the police commissioner freaked arrive? Out. They freaked out. Freaked right, right. out. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, <laughs> but when they realised that he was polite enough to come in civvies, not in his uniform, once they realised that that uh, they weren't under any threat, and once they started receiving the plaques, they relaxed completely. And what did the commissioner make of this? Well, he was astounded because these kids were very well known, and um, the police commissioner. Um, went back to the back to his middle management people and appraised them of what was going on and told them that they were not to arrest these kids. They all had outstanding warrants for various things and 
they're not to, not to arrest them, but to come down and talk to them, uh, make an arrangement, make a time, make an appointment, which must have been quite galling for some of the police, but to come down and talk to them. And that's what they did. And so the end result was that the kids started to realise that the police weren't a threat because they were being treated with a bit of respect. And then I told them if they wanted to go to court and sort out some of their problems, I'd come and talk to the magistrates and just let them know what they were doing. So a lot's been accomplished here with all this. And then in the late 1980s, having accomplished all these things, you made a very big decision to go from being Brian, as you'd been known in those days, to becoming Sarah. How long had you been thinking about making that change? Oh, since I was very young. Since I was very young. Did you ever well, mention it to your parents? Yes, I did at one point in my, in my time, and I was trying to explain to them why I was having some problems in my life. And this was about the time my marriage was in, in a bit of strife. And Dad simply said, oh, you'll grow out of it. And Mum was very sympathetic, but it, ne it never went any further at that point. Why were you reluctant to take it any further at that point? Well, it was the 1960s. You just didn't do that. Yeah, I mean, that was a sort of impossible. Some people did it and some people were able to do it, but it, but it was the society wouldn't have carried it, wouldn't have worn it. So you, you made the change in the, in the late 80s. Do you think that came out of your sense of accomplishment? Like I, no, no, oh, I know I, it did. I know it did. I just, um, I, I realised that I'd done this absolutely extraordinary thing and built a boat that floated, actually floated and did things. And I thought, well, there's nothing to stop me. I can really, you know, I can. And I was, I was my own person at that point. And so I, it was the only real person it was directly going to affect was me. And so I thought, well, I mean, it, it took a long time. It took a long time and a lot of psychological stuff and medical tests and various other things. So then we come to 1996, the boat's been completed and she sails out for the first time. How does it feel to see that, to see the boat come well, out of the slipway and, and take the water and do all of that? Frankly, bloody nerve-wracking. Yeah. Um, uh, you wouldn't want it to topple over going. on the side, would you? Well, it's interesting because, <laughs> no, no, well, I knew that wouldn't happen, yeah. but it was interesting that, that when she was being lowered into the water, somebody in the crowd said to me, I suppose at the back of your mind you're thinking it might leak. I said, well, actually, right at the front of my mind I'm thinking it might leak <laughs> um, because I, I'd never built a boat before, so I had no real idea of, like, a, a, no certainty, in fact. But uh, she went and she was as good as gold and, and it, it took us another couple of years after the launching in 96 to get her fitted out and rigged and she started sailing in 98. How did it feel to sail out on it, to go out right out, uh, out to sea? on? Oh, absolutely amazing. I mean, we, before we'd even, we had the rig even completely finished. I mean, we had, the th we had three squares but not the fourth. and we had to, uh, I still had to build the, um, the yard for the fourth one. And uh, we went out in Storm Bay and got a really good, absolutely flat bay, and uh, Storm Bay, and, and a really, really good wind. And we had a wound out to about 11 knots. And that was unbelievably thrilling. And just, in fact, the day we set the first sail, which I think was about, I think if I remember right, beginning of February in 1998, that was a day. Just setting one sail, we thought we were getting, getting somewhere. How did the locals react to this? Because, you know, Australians can be real bastards to people who really want to try something as massively ambitious as this, that uh, they can sort of stand around and tell you to stop work right away. I've actually seen this happen where they go, nah, it's not going to work. You should, I should had, definitely I, stop. Look, I had heaps of people say, oh, this is a big project. Do you reckon it'll float? And all this sort of stuff, no. you know. So we ended up putting a blackboard up in the shed with all the answers to those questions. Yes, it will float. Yes, we know what we're doing. 
yes, it's a big project. <laughs> yes, we accept donations and, um, and so on. And so. Uh, but on the whole, look, this is Tasmania. And the biggest thing about Tasmania is really that, that if, you, if you're genuinely having a go and people have got confidence in you, once you actually start something like that, people will get behind it. I mean, we had over 250 people worked on that, volunteered to work on that boat through its construction. We had all sorts of accolades for what we were doing. The Rotary Clubs got right behind what we were doing, mainly because I think we were working with young people. And that sort of speaks for itself, really. You will always get somebody who will resent people that, that make a success of something. But uh, it doesn't sound like you had too many naysayers, though, by the way you're talking. Uh, no, not, we had far, far more complimentary and, and helpful people than we had uh, the, the opposite. I mean, even the local port authority, uh, they've supported us since the very beginning. They also helped us, helped supply us with, uh, there were two or three old, big old timber ferries and things down here that were long past the use by date that needed to be removed. And they gave them to me if, we, if I came down and broke them up. So we dismantled them and got a lot of our material that way too. As you can gather, Sarah, I know very, very little about sailing. Uh, my experience on sailing boats or large yachts has been very, very limited. But being a passenger for the first time on a good-sized yacht, it's only happened to me once in my life. It's off the coast of um, Fremantle in, in mm. WA. The biggest shock for me of that, ex that experience was the silent motion through mm. these placid waters, mm. the wind catching the sail mm. and this this big vessel surging forward through the water silently because any other vessel I'd been on had had a bloody outboard motor on it in mm. the past, which mm. is noisy and disruptive. Mm. That was the real pleasure of it for me. There was something really gorgeous about that. Is that part of the, the love and fascination of the experience of sailing in such a ship for you? I, th I think it's part of it. It's certainly part of it because there is nothing nicer than having this, the swish of the sea going past mm. the hull and and, um, and that's all you can hear, really. And, yeah, uh, well, yeah, yeah. And our propeller spins when we're turning. You can hear that. And um, in fact, I can use that when I'm if I wake up in the middle of the night and we're at sea that um, and I hear the propeller. I can tell by the pitch of the the sound of the propeller how fast we're going. And I can I sometimes think, hmm, going a bit faster. We must have a bit more, too much sail up. So I'll go up and have a look because we always rig our sail down at night. We don't carry too much at night. But I think a sailing vessel of any kind is a living, breathing thing. It has a soul of its own. It has a life of its own. And to be part of the team that actually makes that happen, because I can't function with this. It's not just me. And it wasn't just me building the boat. I might have been the director and the, all the rest of it that went with it, and certainly the hands-on person too, but I had a whole team around me working on it. And taking the ship to sea requires a team. It takes a minimum of... 16 people to run that ship at sea over, over any sort of lengthy voyage. And when we take trainees to sea, well, most of them are trainees, but we've always got a core crew of about six people. I've got an excellent first mate who will ultimately be the captain of the vessel. And she's, um, she runs the program on board. So it's like when you're running a radio station or running anything, it, it requires a team. But to be part of that team and to be almost the, the sort of, what's the right word, uh, um, the mentor, if you like, of that team is so rewarding. And watching these kids come through, we do. We've put over 5,000 young people through Windward Bound in, in the life of the ship so far. And we get these stories coming back from them about what a difference it made. Uh, letters coming back saying, if it hadn't been for that voyage, I wouldn't have, I, this is what I've achieved and all those sorts of things. 
uh, turn people's lives around. And, we, and to be able to be partly responsible or, re, or responsible for the project that actually does that is the most extraordinarily rewarding thing. It's been really lovely speaking with you, Sarah. I don't know, what do you say when you go out to sea? Do, what's, what, how do you wish someone will? What do you say to one another when you're... Uh, bon voyage, I suppose. Is well, that what bon it is? Bon voyage is one, but, yeah. um, you know, fair wind following seas is, is, is the regular one for us square rig sailors. Fair wind following seas. Fair wind following seas to you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Richie. Sarah Perry is the captain of the Windward Bound, the tall ship that took her more than 10 years to build in Hobart. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Remember a time when you had one good outfit? Now the average Australian buys 56 items of clothing a year. And it feels like we're on a fast fashion treadmill that's kind of hard to get off. So, how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of Threads, the podcast that undresses the fast fashion industry. From the marketing tricks that are being used on us right now... They're going to use social media to hunt down their prey. Bang, 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 bang. ..to the lies. So greenwashing is a marketing strategy that gives you a reason to buy. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Threads. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.